Our Father, we thank you for Easter and for Good Friday, for the death of Jesus. And we pray today as we reflect on this momentous event that you'll transform our hearts and our minds. You'll help us to know the hope and the love that you're offering, especially in the midst of our crisis. We pray that you would be with us and help us to understand the Lord Jesus and his supremacy. Amen. Well, there are many occasions in life when what might seem to be a little thing, a small thing, an innocuous thing has such momentous consequences that you could never have imagined or foreseen. Small actions, small decisions, small moments, small words even, which influence the course of a life, which dictate the future of nations, which alter even the fate of the world. That's the premise, of course, of the Terminator movies. Uh, change one small thing now and the entire world future looks different. Arnie won't be back. More seriously, though, in our relationships, one bad word can wreck a friendship. One small accident can change a whole career path. Or, on the other hand, two small words can form a marriage and create a new life together, I will. On the international stage, sometimes small things have enormous consequences. An archduke in Austria is assassinated by a Serbian militia group and the world goes to war. A woman turns up to work at a stall, her market stall in a a village and uh, she thought she had a cold And now we're in lockdown on the other side of the world as a consequence. Economies are collapsing as a result. Jobs are being lost. People are scared. And all from one small action, one decision, one moment. A tiny incident with ramifications which roll on and on and on, which will shape our world for years to come. Well, the passage before us in John's Gospel is one of those moments, but it's much more profound even than that because it doesn't just bring a year of change or a decade of change or even a century of change. What happens here in the Garden of Gethsemane, in just a few moments of time that the action occurs over, it sets into motion a change of events which impact the entire future of the world. In fact, it's a moment of of cosmic significance for all eternity. A moment that was long planned for by God, a moment anticipated by Jesus, a moment that was wished for by the Pharisees, a moment that was orchestrated by Satan, or so he thought, and a moment put into effect with such a simple and such a despicable act of betrayal from a friend and follower issuing in the events of Easter. And as we focus on that moment that set it all into motion, I want us to have a fresh vision of Jesus, of who he is and what he's achieved for us and and our relationship with him. And I hope that it gives you great heart, especially now in the midst of this worldwide crisis, a time of fear and of anxiety, when we might be wondering, is there hope? Is there any future? What hope can there be in a world where where life has been upended? What hope can there be when there's real danger to health 
and even to our lives themselves. Indeed, what hope can there be when we see the true nature of people around us as they scramble and they scuffle and they barge and they hoard? I think that's the blackest part of all the darkness. The reality of what humans are like, it is really shining at the moment. Well, not shining, it's dark. But should any of us really be surprised? We really are self-centred creatures and haven't our advertising slogans always been and encouraged us to look out for number one? Well, here we are doing it and this is what it's like. It's ugly. It's very ugly. It's ugly as it's always been. It's ugly as sin. Ugly as sin has always been. As ugly as the betrayal of Judas Iscariot who sold out his friend and master and teacher for a wad of cash. Don't think it couldn't have been any of us after what we've seen in the supermarkets in the last few weeks. What hope can there be in a world like this? Well, there's plenty of hope. Because though this is a horrific moment of betrayal that we're looking at this morning, what we're being shown really is that Jesus is not the victim of circumstance. He's not pushed around unwillingly. He's not bullied into submission. This is Jesus and his majesty is what's on display. There are many people who want to rewrite history and none more so than when it comes to Jesus Christ. They want to see him or picture him or talk about him as a mere man or they use him as a parable of of what happens to people who buck the system. In Jesus Christ Superstar, he's pictured that way. A wonderful person who got himself into a mess and wound up dead. Or in the Da Vinci Code, Jesus tried to liberate people from sexual repression and the British authorities hated it and they hunted him down because of it and had him killed. And our contemporaries have bought the lie. Jesus is just a good man. He's a wise teacher. He's someone that wanted to make a difference and liberate people, but he died as a martyr. None of those things are true. None of them are the case. Jesus was never trapped. Jesus was never tricked. He was never surprised. He went to the cross uh, of his own will because he was born for that express purpose. And thank God that he did, for we have no other hope but for him. As Jesus himself put it on the night just leading up to this moment, he said, now my heart is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. And so as we focus on Jesus today, we'll see that he's totally in control. He is supreme. And so what can look like, could look like his utter humiliation turns out in fact to be proclaiming his glory. And there are just four extraordinary features that I want us to, to, to think through that show the supremacy of Jesus in this whole situation. The first thing that shows his supremacy is his courage, his supreme courage. And so in verse 1 of John 18, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove and he and his disciples went into it. And you might say, well, where's the courage in that? Going into a garden late at night. That's not pretty scary for us. But verse 2, now Judas, who betrayed him, 
knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Jesus often went to the Mount of Olives to get away from the crowds and pray to his heavenly father. And so, of course, Judas, as one of the 12, his closest friends and followers, knew exactly where it was and where Jesus would go. And Jesus knew that Judas knew. In fact, he even knows that Judas has gone ahead in order to betray him to the authorities. And yet Jesus decides he's going to take the disciples there anyway. Now, why go there if he knew? Why not just run away or do like in the movies where they kind of lay some obvious clues that they've gone this way but secretly duck off the other? But he didn't do that. He went there knowing that Judas would come, knowing the soldiers would be there and he was making it very easy for them to arrest him, putting it in a place where it could all happen just as he wanted it to. Not in the middle of Jerusalem, where there might have been riots that tear the city apart. Remember the crowds cheering his arrival just a week before this incident in their thousands welcoming him, crying Hosanna to the king. But it was also a place where he could prove to his disciples that he was not a victim. And so the betrayer comes surrounded by men of violence. And so verse 3, so Judas came to the grove guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Now, how many soldiers do you imagine were there that day? How many is in this crowd that have come for him? I don't know if you've ever tried to, to picture the scene. What, is there two armed guards? Is there 10? Is there 20? Well, John tells us how many there was. He says it was a whole Roman detachment how many is in a Roman detachment, you might ask? Well, it turns out that a detachment, which is also known as a cohort, is a tenth of a legion. A legion is 6,000 soldiers. And so if you're not good at maths, I had to use a calculator, a detachment is 600 soldiers. 600 armed men have turned up in this garden to arrest one man. That's a lot of muscle. 600 soldiers plus the officials who are there armed and dangerous. I'd say it's quite a compliment that they had to send that many to pick up one Galilean carpenter and his friends. Well, what does Jesus do? He takes control. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? He's completely unfazed by the situation And he's not trying to be cheeky or tricky. He's not going to say, oh, Jesus, he went that way. He knows exactly what's happened. It's courage. But it's also more than courage. He's not just putting on a brave face like when you or I might go to the dentist and the drill starts off and inside we're going, but, you know, we're kind of, oh, I can do this. Because as it unfolds, we don't just see his courage. We see Jesus' supreme power frightening, awesome power. Who are you after? He asked them. Verse 5, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. It's astonishing. Picture it, 600 armed men, 
and all the Jewish leaders in their official dress robes, all of them fall down as one before him and for no other reason than he speaks, no other reason than he answers their question. You would think with all these soldiers there they'd have the upper hand and Judas and 600 soldiers would have the power to do what they wanted. But John wants us to be absolutely clear that all Jesus has to do is speak and it's all over. He's standing up and the whole Roman army is on the ground. He has the power over them and he wanted his disciples and he wanted us to see it as it's recorded for us. He wanted them to know, he wanted us to know, he wanted Judas to know, he wanted the whole Roman army to know just who was in control, that he was going to give them his life. They wouldn't take it from him. Nobody was going to take it from him. He speaks and whooshka, hundreds of people went down. Now, how do you explain that? Maybe there was a gas leak and they all swooned at once. Uh, maybe, you know, they'd had beans for dinner in the garrison and that was, that was the end of it. Uh, one scholar suggests that evidently what happened was that someone in the front of the crowd accidentally tripped over and they all went down like dominoes because they were all standing a bit too close to each other. Really? An elite Roman detachment stood too close to each other when they're used to battle formation and tortoise shells and all the rest? Seriously? There's lots of people who want to dismiss the power of Jesus. They want to downplay the spooky stuff. They can't handle someone who actually has this kind of power. I reckon it's because a man of such authority as this and strength makes us feel very, very uncomfortable. If he really can do these things, then then he's way above you and me. He's kind of scary. He's uncontainable. You cannot domesticate Jesus. Even for some Christians, Jesus is like sometimes a genie in a bottle who we pull out when things get tough, when we need an extra boost. But he is the Lord. If he can do this to the Roman soldiers, what can't he do? With a word, he just knocked them down. What is it about the word? What is it about what he says that takes them out? Well, the translators actually haven't helped us here. They've tried to make it sound right in English by adding an extra word that shouldn't be there. It's the little word, he. It's not really there. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, they say. Well, our Bible says, I am he, but the he isn't there. Jesus actually said, I am. Now, who goes by that name? I am. God does. It should make us reflect back. God goes by that name. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses is sent by God to tell the Israelites that I am has sent you. I am will rescue you. I am who I am. Jesus, when he comes, claims that name. This is not the first time. You might look back in John chapter 8. It happens a couple of times there and there's lots of uh, other references to it. But he says, I am and that that name, not even the mighty Romans could stand up in his presence. Jesus has got everything in control. He's supreme in courage and he's supreme in power. 
But then there's a third thing that he shows, that is his supreme love. And I think his love is utterly beautiful as it's on display here. Have a look. Having just laid out the army with his voice, he asks them again in verse 7, sorry, who is it you want? And they say again, Jesus of Nazareth. They've just picked themselves off the ground and they give the same answer like nothing's happened. That's almost unbelievable. And, and they think that they're still looking for a carpenter from Galilee. Maybe they did blame Sergeant Klutz for tripping them all over. Or maybe they were just too embarrassed to acknowledge the reality of what's just happened. Why does Jesus ask them the same question twice? Well, he had a very good reason to. And it's there in verse 8. Have a look at it. I told you that I am, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these other men go. Now that's sharp, he is sharp. He makes them repeat their orders so that from their own mouths they say they have absolutely no right to take the disciples who are there with him. You get it? Twice he makes them repeat their orders to take him and to take him alone and then he says, all right, well take me but let these men go. He's ordering them around and and they do it. It's almost shocking. They obey him. But see, what's Jesus doing? He's protecting his own. It's an amazing thing he does. It's a, it's a powerful example for us to follow ourselves. In the midst of the crisis, he's not thinking of himself. He's thinking of his people. He's, here's the enemy and here's the disciples and then here's Jesus Christ right in the middle, keeping them from each other. It's a, it's a very great picture of what he is about to do on the cross uh, this very day as the events unfold. The thing we are celebrating today, what he was going to do on the cross. Jesus Christ isn't the kind of shepherd who rescues the lamb who's already half eaten by the wolf, who's waiting for the wolf to just uh, have his hunger sated a bit and uh, be a bit lethargic. He's the kind of shepherd that gets out in front to meet the wolves head on before they attack the flock. So here's Jesus, the king giving commands, displaying his protective love for his own. There are many evil things that can happen to us in this life. Some of them are accidental. Some of them are by design. Some of them are even our own doing. But even though terrible things may happen, the promise of Jesus is that nothing can harm our souls or our standing with God, our eternity, our assurance, because he has stood in our place. Jesus loves his disciples ever so deeply. And not just love with the wishy-washy feeling that we might call love today. It's not that we're, we're warming the cockles of his heart or babies deep down in the deep subcockle regions, if you get that. His love means action. That's why he was going to the cross. And that same love means that he keeps interceding for us with the Father and that he's guarding us and he's with us now. Don't believe for a minute, friends, that Jesus would ever let you slip from his grasp. That would be a mission on his own part that he can't keep you. But maybe you're there thinking, well, I... I don't think I actually need him to get me through. 
I don't think I need Jesus to coddle me or to look after me. That makes me look and feel pretty pathetic if I need him. Which is exactly what the Apostle Peter thinks. And so Peter leaps into action without thinking, well, he's thinking, he thinks he doesn't need Jesus' help, he thinks Jesus needs him to rescue him. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. That's Peter, always inappropriate, always thinks he knows better, always doing stupid things because he thinks he's wiser and more powerful than he really is. But Jesus' love even stops Peter from bringing about his own downfall. He calms Peter down. He gets him to put the sword away. What does it say to us? Well, it says none of us could ever be lost when we've got a saviour who cares for us like that. Supreme courage, supreme power, supreme love. But finally, we see something else. We see his supreme obedience to the Father. An obedience that is so complete, so utter, so thorough that he will willingly go to his death, laying his life down for you and for me. Second half of John 18 and verse 11. Peter, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He says, Peter, this, this is what we've been planning since the beginning of eternity. And if you just step aside for a moment and get out of the way, just let it happen. This is the plan. Notice the word cup there. The idea of the cup in the Old Testament is often associated with judgment. It's the cup of wrath, the cup of anger. Just like in that other reading that we had from Isaiah chapter 51, what Jesus is saying is he's going to drink a cup full of anger. And when Jesus went to the cross, just hours after this, it was to drink a cup of wrath. Whose wrath? It wasn't the wrath of humanity as angry as they were in, and they had, they ganged up and they got what they wanted. But the cup was a cup of God's wrath. Why is God angry? What would he have to be angry about? He's angry at our sin. The evil that's in our hearts. Our betrayal of God. Our selfishness. Our carelessness. Our ingratitude to God. That we're seeing all on display in the midst of our current crisis. And Jesus says, Shall I not drink that cup? Bearing the shame and the agony and the sin. Shall I not take upon myself what is due for your sin, Peter? And for your sin, Joe? And for your sin, David? And for your sin out there? This is how it's planned. Shall I not do it? And we ought to say what Peter did not say. We ought to say, do it, Lord, please do it. Because there's no other way we could be right with God. There's no no other way that we could be forgiven and made clean. Because if you don't drink at Jesus, then we'll have to drink it ourselves. 
We'll have to face God on our own with no help from the protective, supreme love of Jesus, with no sacrifice for the sins we've committed, with no way to dodge the bullet. And Jesus willingly drinks the cup. And dear friend, he drank it to the bottom. He drank it to the dregs. He died our death. He has paid for your sin. He died in obedience to the Father's plan. It was supreme obedience. Friends, the majesty of Jesus Christ is what we've got on display here in this one small, awful incident of betrayal. But it's the majesty of Jesus Christ that we see. Majestic in his courage, majestic in his power, majestic in his love, majestic in his obedience, supreme. One small incident in the life of a man. Massive ramifications for the world, for history. Massive ramifications for you, for me. And so my question this Easter is, Have you comprehended it? Have you understood exactly who this man is? Have you absorbed just what it was that he was doing for you? This is no mere man and this is no accidental death. Those who want to rewrite history cannot come to terms with him or with what he was doing. Don't be like them. Don't be like them. He is God. He has come in supreme power and love to die your death that you might have life. Come to rise again that death itself would be destroyed. Come to save you. Will you let him? Have you let him? This is a moment of history written by God to change the world, to change history, to change you. Have you comprehended it? Have you understood who this man is? Have you absorbed just what he was doing for you? Let's pray. Father, these are enormous things that you are presenting to us. Jesus, not the victim of circumstance, not any man's pawn, but the supreme Lord of all. We thank you that he is God, awesome in power, awesome in love, awesome and supreme in every way. And we thank you he was willingly pouring out his life for us. Thank you for your mercy and your love, for this plan that no one could have comprehended. Thank you that you have willingly paid to have us back, that your wrath might be turned aside. Father, help us to absorb and cherish, uh, savour this wonderful truth and come and live with you, the King, now and forever. Amen.